Well, you know what? One of the worst feelings in the world is the sense that you're not making any progress with life. Or worse, it feels like you're moving backwards. Life feels like a spin cycle. Lots of movement, but no direction, no progress. No positive movement forward. Your goals have evaporated because it takes all the energy you have just to survive week to week. Do you have that feeling of stuckness right now? It could be at work, it could be in relationships, it could be at school, it could be in a sport that you participate in. We all set up these goals in our minds, right? These markers. By this age, I should be at this stage of life. I should possess this, I should have experienced that. Had this much money in the bank. And when you don't hit those goals, whether or not they're even the right goals, we feel stuck. We feel discouraged. I have felt that way as a, as a dad. Um, Louise and I have felt at times stuck in our marriage. Um, I felt this way at church sometimes. Are we stuck? Are we making progress or not? Um, I think I felt it most intensely when I was in my mid-30s. In my mid-30s, I had my goals at work and my desires at work and my desires to be a great dad came clashing in and collided. We had, we had three kids under four. And I was wanting to see so many things happen here at the church. And yet, I wanted so much to be a good dad. And I felt like I wasn't really making progress. I felt like I was moving backwards in each of them. They were colliding. You know, one of the great graces when we feel discouraged or when we feel like we're stuck is that we have to reevaluate our goals and sometimes adjust our goals. And the pain that we feel can be a mercy because it can help us adjust and to live more in rhythm with reality. Well, we can also feel stuck spiritually, feel like there's no progress. And this is where our passage today speaks. As I said, sometimes when we miss these elusive markers, it causes us to reevaluate the worthiness of our goals. But in this passage this morning, something becomes clear. And that is the target, the goal, the aim of our spiritual life. And what it will take to get there. You know, if we aim at nothing, remember, we'll hit it every time. But with anything in life, anything in life, the first step to making progress is knowing where we want to land the plane. Can you imagine being in a plane and the pilot having a fuzzy goal? His voice or her voice comes up over the loudspeaker saying, well, today, maybe we will land in Boston. First bad sign. Maybe. Or maybe we will land in Denver. Or maybe we will land in Saskatchewan. How does that all sound, right? Sounds like I don't want to be on that plane. You see, when it comes to our relationship with God, one of our great enemies is having the wrong goal 
are having no goal at all. Many of us have detailed and outlined goals for our retirement or for climbing the ladder at work or for the kind of house we want to live in or the kind of vacations that we want to take, the kinds of colleges that we want our kids to go to. Yet few of us grasp, few of us have taken the time to define what is our spiritual goal. Indeed, one of the great enemies to becoming authentically spiritual people is passivity. Becoming passive about our spiritual life. Dallas Willard argues this. He said, Dallas Willard said that the great enemy to our spiritual growth is passivity. The idea that God has done everything and you are essentially left to be a consumer of the grace of God. Now, as a bonus, you can find the rest of that quote in your sermon notes on the app. So you'll have to go to the app for the rest of that quote. And you will find, by the way, all the uh, outline in your sermon notes on the app. So I would ask, you know, in connection to this idea, could it be, just could it be, think for a moment, could it be that our view of the gospel is so small that it leaves us busy with religious activities, but at our core, we are spiritually unmotivated. You know, Paul knew this same grace of God that Willard referred to. He knew eternal life was a free gift and it could not be earned. He preached it so clearly that Paul was accused by the legalist of empowering people to be spiritually lazy, to become spiritual deadbeats, to becoming spiritual consumers. Paul himself, he basked in God's free and unconditional acceptance. Yet in this next segment of Philippians, we find a man in his early 60s whose soul is still on fire. He was content. Chapter 4, verse 12. He rested in Jesus' righteousness, as we saw last week, Philippians 3, 9. Yet, that same grace energized him to want to know Jesus with every fiber of his being. And we'll see through his life that we must be intentional. We cannot be passive in our discipleship. Would you stand together? You can look on your device or if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to read today's passage, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21. God's word. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. 
Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before now and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is God's word. And pray, pray with me. Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, open up our eyes this morning to receive the word that we need in our lives. Father, may every single person here at some point during this message have a connecting point with you where their heart experiences your presence and your voice in a, in a profound and distinctive way. Father, it's not impossible for you to do that. And we ask you for that in Jesus' name for the glory, your glory, and for our good. Amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Well, the spiritual goal here that Paul has in mind is expressed in the middle of the passage in verse 15. When he says that all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. This is the goal for your life. This is the goal for every believer to become spiritually mature, to become a spiritual adult, to be able to reproduce your life and have spiritual children, so to speak, to give life to others, so to speak, to reproduce the life of Christ in others. That is God's will for every single one of us. God wants us to grow into spiritual adulthood. And we see three action points in this passage that tell us the pathway there. Verses 12 through 16 is to press. Verse 17 is to imitate. And verses 18 through 21 is to expect. So let's begin with forgetting. Now, what we have to see here is that forgetting and pressing are inseparable. Forgetting and pressing forward are inseparable. Forgetting and pressing towards the goal exists for Paul in a symbiotic relationship. You cannot press towards a goal without forgetting what lies behind. And you cannot forget what lies behind without pressing towards the goal. The point is, is that Paul leaves behind anything that will hinder him from making progress towards his goal. Now look closely at th this particular passage. Three times he indicates he is pressing or pursuing, implying vigorous action. In verse 13, he uses an analogy from running a race. And the picture here is straining towards a goal, a strong exertion of energy with every fiber of your being. Some of you have run in a lot of races and you, you know that story. 
Verse 14, again, he says, I press on towards the goal. Now, what is the goal? Or another way of asking the question, as we have framed it, is what does maturity look like? Well, look at verse 12 in the middle of these, these admonitions or this example. He says, I press forward to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Take hold is a word picturing strong action, such as to seize hold of something. Every parent, you have probably at some point, your kid was going to fall off something. Going to fall off a counter, they're going to fall off a cliff, they're going to fall out of a tree, they're going to fall off a ledge, and you seize them at the moment Hopefully you did. You got there first. You seized them. This verse could be translated, I am seizing that for which Christ Jesus seized me. It's almost a violent action, though not, of course, meant for hurt. Verse 14 says, the goal to, is to win the prize for which Christ Jesus called me heavenward. So we see this pursuing and God's calling. Now, these three are not different. They're not different goals or different things that he's after. It is the same goal that he outlined in big, broad terms back in verse 10. Look at verse 10, if you would, where Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection the dead. God has seized Paul. God has called Paul. Why? Why did God seize Paul? Well, to get the best answer to this, let's stay in scripture and go back to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we have recorded for us the story where Jesus seized Paul's life. This was the moment in life when Paul, for sport and for passion, was hunting Christians. And on his road to Damascus, Jesus encountered him. Jesus intervened. Jesus appeared to him, blinded him temporarily, and called Paul to serve him. Paul was helpless in the moment to do anything. And there was an otherwise unknown servant named Ananias, and the Lord appeared to him and directs Ananias to help him. And Ananias objects saying, Lord, I've heard all about this guy. He's hunting Christians. I don't want to go to him. This is what God said to Ananias, Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, Paul understood the goal here. This beautiful, challenging, expansive, stretching, rewarding goal outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, impossible for any person to fulfill. So he knew where the finish line was. He had a clear picture of it, and he aimed his whole life for it. To know Christ and to make Christ known. 
You see, becoming like Jesus, he says in verse 10, becoming like Jesus. And he knew that becoming like Jesus, we see it right there, is going to take him through a pathway of suffering. And for Paul, the cross and its suffering does not repel him. He knows that intimacy with Jesus could not be divorced from suffering with him. And so he leans into it. He rejoices in his suffering, knowing that it is a necessary road to introduce others to Jesus. He also is convinced that he will experience the resurrection and the reward of the afterlife. Note here that Paul never plays the martyr card in his suffering. And my goodness, if someone had the opportunity to play the martyr card, it was Paul, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He always saw his suffering through the expanse and the glory of eternity, through winning the victor's crown, through being honored by Jesus for his service. And Paul's theology never drew some red line between the hope of an eternal reward with selflessness. Paul never deemed it to be selfish to be desirous of an eternal reward. He knew there was purpose to what he suffered. He was writing this letter from a Roman prison, and in a few short years, he would lose his life for knowing Jesus. So the goal he strove for was knowing Jesus, experiencing intimacy with him in his suffering participating in the gospel and looking forward to the resurrection. This made him a friend of Jesus. This made him a friend of the cross. It was all part of the pathway towards spiritual maturity. Now, so that's the pressing part, right? That's the pressing part. That's the one side of this symbiotic relationship. But what about the other side of the symbiotic relationship? To press toward the goal, what else must he do? He must forget. But what must he forget? What must Paul forget? Was it his violence and murderous persecution of Christians before his conversion? Was it his rich heritage in Judaism or the successes he experienced as an aspiring lawyer? Was it the rejection he experienced from non-Christians, sometimes coming with ridicule and even physical violence? Was it the devastating betrayal that he felt from other believers who were once close friends, but then gave up their faith and left them, and left them sometimes at his most vulnerable points? You know, it's one thing to be left by somebody. It's another thing to be left when you're most vulnerable. We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But we might imagine that it includes A, B, C, D, and E. (laughs) All the above. The point is, Paul says, I leave behind everything that hinders me from moving forward. Everything that defeats me. Everything that has me stuck or moving backwards. Now, we're spending the most time on this first point, by the way, but we need to bring some clarity to this, right? Because this might be confusing for some of us. Because at this church, we've talked a lot about the need to address your past, hurts from your past, 
wounds from your past. Sins done to you. Injustices done to you. Wrongs done to you are sins that you have done in your past. When Paul says to forget, he is not discouraging us from dealing honestly with our past. And that is what addressing your past means. Big picture. Big picture. What does it mean addressing your past? It is bringing God's truth to bear on your past so that you can continue to grow spiritually, relationally, and emotionally. That's what it means. Bringing God's truth to bear on your past past, so you can continue to grow. We go backwards to move forwards so that we can move past old family patterns that are not in the way of Jesus. We go backwards to move forwards so that we can forgive and not be embittered. We go past in order to move forward so that we can ask for forgiveness and not be racked with guilt. We go backwards first so that we can move forward and reflect and learn from our past and not repeat the same mistakes <laughs> or just blindly pass them on to our kids. I cannot imagine Paul who lived by the truth forgetting so as to bury the past, so as to not address it. No, he's forgetting so he can move forward. The goal of a believer ought to be to learn from the past, but not be stuck in the past. The past does not have to define you. And you see, this is the balance here. There really is an important balance here. Dwelling in the past, dwelling in a past in a way that becomes obsessive, or in a way that becomes self-absorbing, or in a way that becomes endlessly introspective, actually prevents you from growing. And so this is how we see this dynamic tension that is needed for us to think about. Forget, press. Forget, press. And when we can calibrate those two tensions, that's how we can deal honestly with our past, address the past, yet continue to press forward. I'll say for myself, I have a real problem with this. I have a real problem with this, of getting stuck in the past. I can be endlessly introspective and can just be in despair over past failures. I can become very dark in my thinking. And, 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 and here's, here's what I've sort of learned through this. That in that dark moodiness at times, here's what's really going on, I think, is that I'm afflicting myself. It's a form of self-affliction. That's not pulling out some whips and whipping my back, but it is a form of mental self-affliction. And it's really trying to do some kind of penance. Trying to figure out some way for me to make up for my failures. You see, that's not humility. It has the appearance of being humble, beating yourself up, self-deprecating, putting yourself down, appears, wow, he, that's really humble. It's not humble. It's not humble. It's actually a form of pride because I am trying to pay for my sins and not let them go and allow God and forget them in the sense of moving past 
them. What a wonderful tension here Paul teaches. I mean, Paul understands human psychology before human psychology even became a discipline. <laughs> Forgetting, pressing. Forgetting, dealing with the past, being honest with the past, but not getting stuck in it. Moving forward. Where are you having trouble? I've shared my story. Where are you having trouble letting go of the past? Where are you having? Where is it hard for you to let go? Um, a specific loss that you've not adequately mourned, and now that loss totally defines you. Um, Pete Cazero shares this story. Many of you probably know it. Miss Haversham from Great Expectations, the daughter of a wealthy man, she received a letter at 8.40 a.m. on her wedding day saying that her husband-to-be was not coming. She stopped all the clocks in the house at the precise time the letter arrived and spent the rest of her life in her bridal dress which eventually turned yellow, and wearing only one shoe since she had not yet put on the other one at the time of disaster. Even as an old lady, she remained crippled by the weight of that crushing loss. She decided to live in her past, not her present or her future. Is there something you need to forget? Some despair over past sins? Some persistent bitterness over a past wrong? God wants to heal your past. God wants you to address your past, but God wants you to give you the freedom to press forward. Amen? Let's go to the second point, which is to imitate. Go back to verse 17. Verse 17 means to imitate. Or says to imitate. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. You know, Louise really loves cooking shows, and actually, I do too. I was just honest. I really do like it. I, and, you know, every time when Louise likes it, it works out well for me and for the kids. She has a tradition of uh, every birthday, she cooks for the kids whatever they want and whatever I want, and then we do the same for her. So it always works out well for us. Tim Chalice wrote about cooking shows. He wrote this. He said, whether in narrow pursuits like cooking or wider pursuits like living, we are people who thrive on imitation and inspiration. Right? Whether deliberately or inadvertently, we are always on the lookout for people who are worthy of imitation. Aspiring chefs seek out, carefully watch, and closely imitate experienced chefs. Now, cooking shows are meant to be entertaining, but they are also meant to be inspiring. They are meant to attract viewers, but also to inspire imitators. And in that way, they are a little glimpse of the way we should all live our lives. For in some ways, every life should be a show or a public demonstration of virtue, a display of character, a demonstration of practical godliness. Every life should be lived in such a way that it inspires others to imitate it. Imitation through informal learning or on-the-job training is so key to our spiritual maturity. It was the primary method Jesus chose in training his disciples. 
And again, be sure to check out the sermon notes where there are some bonus scriptures on those. It was his primary method, Acts 4, 13 and Mark 3, 12. Jesus trained his disciples through being with them. Scholars today call it an informal mode of education and training. But it was basically follow me. And the word follow me literally means imitate me. Do what I do. You see, the entire direction of this passage that we're in today still echoes back to chapter 2, where Paul said, have the same attitude of Jesus. And so he's essentially saying here, as I imitate Jesus, imitate me. And look for others in your life who are also following the same path, who are walking in the ways of Jesus, who are likewise friends of the cross. Can I tell you what is desperately needed in the church in America today? We don't need more refined teaching. We don't need more celebrity leaders. We don't need more entertaining services or bigger buildings. We don't need more relevance or cool pastors. We have all those things and we're not transforming our culture. What is needed are living and breathing examples of everyday men and women who are incorporating the ways of Jesus into every aspect of their life, who have a clear picture of Christ-likeness and are striving for it every day. And that other believers can be in such close proximity to those kinds of people, they can see them and touch them and imitate their faith. You see them in real life respond gently when unjustly criticized or mourn honestly yet not lose hope when suffering or show kindness when disagreeing or returning good for evil. You see them when they are slow to anger or when they incorporate Jesus into everyday conversation with a workmate or a server in restaurant. When the church is filled with everyday examples like that, we will then have a greater hope of transforming our culture. You know, we've built our entire church around this principle, at least the, the ministry of our church is built around this principle that more is called than taught. In our development of leaders, in our approach to discipleship, in our congregational care, this principle is woven through the way that we think about how we can mature together as believers. Your proximity to mature believers is so important to your spiritual growth. It's essential. This is one, per one of the purposes of our life groups and why we focus on developing the leaders of those life groups. We want there to be dozens of men and women in this church that our pastors can point to and say, they're not perfect. They still stumble and fall. But in their pursuit of Jesus, in their integrity, in their faith through suffering, we say to all of you, imitate them. Follow them. Imitate them. Let's look at the last point. The last verb here, the pathway to maturity. So we've gone through imitation, and, uh, and what was our first point? Just shout it out, somebody. Forget and press. Thank you. It's like it had these like, little like mind just blanking, you know, even though we just spent like 20 minutes on it. Forget and press. Imitate. Now the last point, expect. Expect. 
We saw this passage here, 18 through 21. You know, it's what you expect. It's what you expect. It's what you want in the future. It's what excites you emotionally. Those are your real goals and my real goals. Even if they're different than your stated ones. What we want. What excites us emotionally. And this passage shows that the spiritual life is one that is ever forward focused. Moving towards a glorious future. And so the question for us on spiritual maturity is this, is what fills your desire for the future? What is, do you see on the horizon of your life? You know, when I was younger, I could look out the, 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 the back window of our house. I was just like four or five and six. And I just used to like to look at the terrain and the landscape behind our house. It was nothing spectacular, no mountains um, or rivers or lakes or anything of that nature, but just like a cornfield. And, but you could see really far, and, and, and it sloped up into the future. There's a few tiny houses here dot. And I just used to, as a, just a little guy, just like to stare out the window at the horizon, at the terrain. Uh, of course, eventually there was development, and uh, that blocked that. Or the pine trees that my dad planted grew too big. But before that, I could enjoy the horizon. All of us, whether it's stated or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, you have a horizon that you're looking out at in respect to the future. Paul has been describing a life here that can be described as a friend of the cross. And now we see the contrast. Who are these enemies of the cross? Well, we can't say for certain. One opinion that I have is that these were individuals who were once a part of the community of followers of Jesus. And that might explain Paul's tears as opposed to those with whom he had no relationship with. Now, stomach here is likely not merely food but rather a description of someone driven by an appetite or a pleasure for comfort or for affluence. Their goals are not to become like Christ, but to squeeze as much self-driven pleasure from this life as possible. Suffering, the cross, the denial of self to follow Jesus repels them. It repels them. They want nothing they want nothing about that. If they're following, if they are trying to follow Jesus, they have got it figured out in some way that I'm going to avoid all suffering and all loss. Now, the phrase that Paul uses to describe this worldview, look at what he says. Here's the phrase, their mind is set on earthly things. Their mind, their focus, their frame of reference, the horizon by which they see is filled with earthly things. Who's that remind you of? Reminds me of the story of Peter, right? Who, weeks before the cross, he rebuked Jesus. Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, here's what I'm going to endure at the cross. And Peter says in so many words, you're crazy, Jesus, you're crazy. The Messiah's suffering is simply not in anybody's playbook. It is so upside down. And literally he says, this shall never happen to you, Lord. 
Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's exactly what Paul's been talking about. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is what Paul is saying. You see, the enemies of the cross, their mind is completely set on this kingdom. And that has skewed their values completely. Their whole aim, their whole target is not off by inches, but by miles. Stunningly, he says, you're actually in league with Satan. You're in league with Satan. And you're working against the purposes of God. And friends, that could happen to us, right? We can be so earthly bound in our thinking and in our horizon that we're actually in league with Satan. Because we're work, we find ourselves working against the purposes of God. But what should be for us, what should be our passport is that our citizenship, our identity, our allegiance, our sense of what makes up our true home is not in this life, but in the age to come. And because it is our true home and our true city, we are excited, we are expectant of the return of Jesus. Yet, the reality is, for myself and for many of us, the return of Jesus is something we rarely think about or rarely talk about. Yet, as one scholar said this week, I think this is true, the return of Jesus is as important as the cross of Jesus. Because his return, as we saw in chapter 2, is connected to Jesus' vindication and ultimate victory over sin and death. If the return of Jesus does not give you a sense of exhilaration, a sense of wonderful anticipation, like I used to sit on this chair for hours the week before Christmas, just looking and staring at the Christmas presents and the toys, waiting for them to be opened, looking forward to that day. If it does not excite your senses, if you feel like, oh man, going to heaven is going to keep me from experiencing real life, or going to heaven if Jesus returns is going to keep me from my bucket list. And everything that is going to fulfill me. Listen, friends. Not only do you misunderstand what marvels Jesus will bring at the restoration when he makes all things new. But it may be, it may be. And you have to judge your own heart. It may be that your interests are not really in the cross. But your interests are in your economic well-being, your own comfort, your own affluence, your own material goals. What's also beautiful about this is that Jesus will give you a new body. Just as Jesus became a man and experienced humiliation and weakness and suffering, so do we, right? So do we. We experience humiliation. We experience suffering as our bodies fail as our bodies don't work, as our bodies are subject to temptation, as our bodies are subject to the appetites of this, uh, the, the immediate appetites that so 
are so tempting. I think this is why Paul uses here, he focuses on the body because he's contrasting with those who were just enslaved to whatever their bodies wanted. I think that's his point. This word power there is the same word used in Acts 1.8. It's from the word that we get dynamite. It means invincible. Through Jesus' invincible power, he will change your lowly, humiliated, suffering body to be like his glorious body. And there will both be discontinuity. Your body won't, it won't be like the body you have now. But there will also be continuity. You will recognize one another. You will see one another and know one another and recognize one another. We will be changed by his invincible power to be like him. So what have we said this morning? What have we said? Forgetting and pressing. Imitating. Expecting. Having Jesus fill our horizon. This is the pathway to maturity. This is the pathway to maturity. This is the pathway to becoming like Christ. That's the goal. Becoming like him in his death, a friend of the cross. Following in the same pattern of Jesus, of the cross and resurrection, with your time and life and resources. In other words, we go down as Jesus did. We go down, not to prove our own religiosity. We go down, why? To lift others up. In the same way that Jesus went down to lift others up, in the same way we imitate him in our suffering, we go down to introduce others to Jesus, to help others grow in Jesus, to serve the poor, to seek the lost, and all the things that the church is called to do. And then, of course, we imitate Jesus in looking forward and aiming our lives in the direction of a future resurrection where you will be affirmed, believer, you will be affirmed and you will be vindicated by God himself. So, to finish up, let's ask the question here this morning. Are there things in your past that you need to let go of? What in your past do you need to let go of to press forward? And what is the first step that you might need to take. Secondly, do you need mentors in your life to whom you can imitate? Now, I want to tell you something. In all likelihood, the pastors here will not be able to mentor you. In all likelihood, the pastors will not be able to mentor you. But can I tell you something? There are many people in this church that I would say to you, I would point to many, many members in this church, I would say, follow their example as they're following Jesus. I would say it about many people in this church. So if you need a mentor, come to one of us and we'll try to connect you to people whose lives are worth imitating. And finally, expect. And the one thing I might encourage you to do there and one thing that helped a lot of us is a book by Randy Alcorn on heaven. What a beautiful book. What a wonderful book that, that takes so many of the things, the wrong things that we've believed about heaven and really brings a necessary life and correction too. And that book, unlike so many others, helps us to really see what an embodied existence in heaven in the kingdom of God will look like. And it is so mind-blowing, so beautiful. So passivity, wrapping back to where we started, we said passivity is 
our enemy. And if we can break through our passivity, we can follow the admonition of Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it is God who's at work in you, but you still have something to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Nick, I'm going to mention the quote that you mentioned last week and just to add a little bit to it. And Nick and Faith, you guys can come on up. This is what Dallas Willard said. Again, Nick mentioned this last Sunday. I'm just going to mention the last two phrases to what he said. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. And by the way, this was in an article entitled, Live the Full Life. The path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set fire, set on fire by the grace of God. Paul, who perhaps understood grace more than any other human being, looked back at what happened to him and said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. In other words, he's saying, it did not make me a spiritual deadbeat. (laughs) Rather, I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Let's pray, and then we'll be able to respond through song and prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that you would help each individual here to, during the next several songs, might the connection point with you through this message or through the earlier songs, through something Mike or Raven or Jason shared. Lord, might that gift, that particular point of connection with you, help them even now to reflect on that, that it might be driven home in their hearts. And that we might hear, Father, see Jesus. We might see him. Father, I Perhaps this is a word from you, perhaps not. But it comes to me now again, wondering how many in this congregation are essentially unmotivated, just going through the motions. And Father, I believe that reason to be is because their faith is simply religion. It's just religion. It's just something that they do. It's just activities. And maybe never. Maybe a long time ago, they had at one time stepped into the fullness of Jesus. You said that there was a fullness of life in you, a grace upon grace that would motivate us as it did Paul to want to make Jesus the single focus of our life. A motivation that's like a a wide river that just keeps flowing and is never emptied out. Lord, if some of my friends today here have just hit that point where there's no motivation left, there's no fire left, there's no energy left, 
may you pour a fresh vision today of the grace of God on them. That they might live a full life. And like Paul, be able to forget and to press forward. Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing together.